Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. In this episode, I sat down with Michael Lee. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Data Incubator. We discussed the current state of data science and data engineering training programs, Apache Spark, his early days in quantitative finance, and misunderstandings around the term data science. I also want to highlight the fact that Michael is going to be teaching an online training class on October 10th called Distributed Computing with Spark for Beginners. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you check out that training class. So I'm here today with Michael Lee, founder and CEO at the Data Incubator. Welcome to the Data Show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ben. So before we talk about the Data Incubator, let's uh, talk about you and your background, which is uh, quite eclectic. Uh, First off, at school, you have both a CS and a math background, correct? That's right. So my undergrad was in computer science at Princeton, uh, then went and uh, did a master's in Cambridge in pure math and probability, and moved back to Princeton for my PhD doing applied math. Uh, so the kind of natural combination of computer science and math, and particularly probability and statistics, is data science. And I sort of ended up there. Through so kind of a, uh, what came over you? Why did you go for something applied like CS with such great job prospects to pure math? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great um, that's a great question, Ben. So I would say that there is this kind of uh, spell you get put under, especially if you go to Princeton um, and you're in your you know early twenties. You start really questioning why things are true, and you start really wondering about the uh, deep epistemological structure. And I was very fascinated by pure math. I was very fascinated by probability, and I wanted. You know, I took a few intro courses, but got very interested in sort of just like, well, why is that true? What does it mean when we say a distribution uh, versus a random variable? Who were your professors in Princeton? I guess uh, the pure math people there are Conway, Andrew Wiles. I guess back back in the day you had, um, I I guess, uh, E.M. Stein, harmonic analysis. And so who was doing probability? Oh, yes. Professor Stein was a big influence. Uh, he taught the analysis sequence, which is kind of like the foundations of probability theory. Uh, so within Princeton, we have a, uh, a few folks who are really well-known in probability. Probably the best well-known is a guy named Erhan Chinlar. Uh, in fact, his probability book notes, which I don't know if he's actually turned them into a book yet, but those are the ones that I learned a lot of probability from. And then kind of Doing more independent reading, uh, I read a lot of Foman, Komogorov uh, and Foman, sorry. And I also read a lot of Sheldon Ross's book, actually. That's a very good right. intro ability. So did you ever get into, so when I was in grad school, I got into a stochastic PBEs even. Oh, yes. Um, that was actually what I ended up doing. So for my PhD, I was very fascinated in kind of applying all this pure probability theory to something kind of uh, more concrete and more tangible. And I was very interested in mathematical finance. And mathematical finance is, as a discipline, very interested in stochastic differential equations, which are kind of like the differential equations you would have learned about in uh, calculus or a Diffie class. But then there's a random component to it. So there's a stochastic or Brownian motion component to it. Yeah, uh, and that makes it really fascinating. Incredibly interesting, but uh, 
requires a lot of foundational background in order to get it right. And so it's, it's once you're in, in it, it's really has a lot of applications. It's just hard to enter that uh, space because uh, very you to, true. You have to know so much real analysis for one, right? Yep. I'll, I, I, like I said, I was a disciple of Stein and a disciple of Komogorov and Fomin. So I love those books. And I think that naturally led me towards probability theory. Which actually uh, makes a lot of sense, even though you're uh, much younger and, uh, than me. Because uh, back, in, back in my time, actually, when I left academia, the exit <laughs> strategy then was to be a quant. And, that, nowadays, and that's actually what I did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Initially. But, but uh, it's mostly because uh, topically that aligned with what you were studying. But I imagine by the time you got out, there were a lot more options than quant, right? Yeah, so th that's that's right. Um, there's so I actually did kind of do the traditional quant route initially. So uh, ended up working at places like DE Shaw, JP Morgan. Uh, actually, sometimes towards the end, I was sort of doing consulting work, applying my uh, my research on optimal execution to helping the banks kind of think about how they want to run their own execution desks. Uh, so that was very rewarding and very nice. But ultimately, I think I realized I was a lot more interested in how people moved around and how money moved around. Um, and so I made the transition to Silicon Valley, working at Andreessen Horowitz, uh, kind of as a data scientist in residence there, and eventually moved to one of their portfolio companies, Foursquare, uh, where I did all the data science for monetization. Um, I think they sort of saw me as, oh, you're an ex-quant. You know how to turn equations into money. Why don't you go figure out monetization? So it was a, it was a lot of fun, actually. By the um, way, I'm looking at your, I, I'm looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile, and it seems like you were in Wall Street at the, you were entering Wall Street right around the uh, great financial crisis. Oh, that's right. Um, it was an interesting time to be there. And I think uh, that also sort of spurred a large amount of interest in regulation as well as, uh, you know, the regulation around high-frequency trading, right. um, around these sort of very sophisticated uh, derivatives, um, as well as sort of, you know, my more, uh, as well as sort of more mathematical topics. By the way, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I always felt that finance was, it's actually hard, right? Because so, uh, the market is so, mm -hmm. the market is so efficient, and there's only so many ways you can actually come up with a, uh, mm. uh, consistently profitable strategy and then at some point it it gets uh, the market becomes even more efficient and then that strategy is gone <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i have to agree um you know when i think about uh finance i often think of it as like data science 1.0 maybe even data science 2.0 and what we call data science now is really more like data science 2.0 or 3.0 right it's the next wave of data science and so it means that when people were doing this in Wall Street, they had much more primitive tools uh, than, you know, in the 80s and the early 90s than we're using now. And so they were kind of scraping by. But because they've been doing it for so much longer, there's just so much more of a built up, uh, you know, understanding of how this works. Uh, and it's really, you know, a lot of what I was doing at Foursquare was just taking basic things that I learned on Wall Street, kind of applying them towards monetization. And it did pretty well. So I think there's a lot that data science can learn from finance and vice versa. And vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Because in finance, you tend to work with kind of well-established data sets that people have looked at inside out, cleaned, 
right? Very much so. I think the problem of cleaning your data sets is often kind of seen as something you want to outsource to someone else. I think that not always, but predominantly dealing with structured data. And now there's, as we sort of see techniques coming that are being employed widely in Silicon Valley to use data science on unstructured data. I think there's now a growing interest within the quant community to say, oh, how can we not just use the structured training data we've always been using, but start incorporating unstructured data into our analysis? So I don't know if you can talk about it openly, but what kinds of things did you do at A16Z? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I'll sort of give a vague description. Um, but we were very interested in using uh, public signals that you could get to help identify good private investments particularly in the B2C side. So, you know, and a lot of that is, of course, using unstructured, a little structured, but unstructured data and thinking about how do you, what's a good signal? How can we try to understand what is the growth rate of this company? Um, there are some amazing slides I was able to build when I was there, kind of showing or getting at the kind of estimating some of the growth rates of these uh, B2C companies. And it's kind of astounding. So I... Then you went ahead and started Data Incubator, which actually, in my mind, how I think of you now, you seem like you're really passionate about uh, teaching and and training the next generation of data professionals. So what what was the uh, genesis for coming up with Data Incubator? Yeah, so I think... That as someone... Oh, by the way, Michael, you you can start by describing Data Incubator. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, so the Data Incubator is... uh, We're a data science training company, and we do a number of things. Uh, um, We're probably best known for our fellowships. So it's a free fellowship for master's and PhD students who are looking to transition into data science or people who have some industry experience. We also have a lot of those types of candidates. And we... You know, it's free for them. We work with them. We train them up. And then we work with hiring companies who are interested in uh, hiring top-notch talent. Uh, So it's sort of a reverse education model where we kind of put it, uh, we have the companies who are going to hire you that pay for the education. But you've Uh, since expanded to other training. We have. That's right. So we're also doing corporate trainings, taking the same curriculum that we have uh, and our you know, hiring companies are basically saying, it's great that we hire a few people from your quarter. But what we really need is to train up our hundreds of thousands of statisticians and actuaries and get them caught up to being a data scientist. So then we're rolling out a curricula- that, that same curriculum for them and helping them get caught up uh, on the latest and greatest tools in data science. But I, I was just going to say to, you know, to answer your question, the way, we, the way I really sort of started thinking about this is kind of from my own experiences. So I was on both sides of the interviewing table, right, as a PhD exiting uh, academia, looking to get into industry and thinking about how I wanted to make that transition and seeing some of the difficulties and challenges that students face. And then on the other side, being on the interviewing side and thinking about how we hired people and then realizing that there were a lot of... uh, people who had great resumes, uh, but then when you kind of actually talk to them, they maybe weren't as good as uh, they appeared. So my idea was, let's try to build something in the middle that can kind of help employers uh, sort through all the tons and tons of candidates who want to apply uh, to work for them, and also help students who are looking to learn and enter this industry get caught up on some of the latest tools and technologies that will make them much more competitive. 
So let me ask you this. When I got my PhD, I actually uh, did uh, the faculty uh, thing. Mm. So I was an, an academic for five years. So you bypassed that, but now you're rediscovering that you actually love teaching. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. No, that's a very good point, right? I think I found that one of the things I actually really enjoyed at Foursquare was mentoring uh, people and working with engineers to get them caught up on data science techniques. Uh, I mean, as faculty, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that most of your job and most of your job performance is tied towards research and not in publications, which everyone kind of, especially publications, everyone rolls their eyes at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually something that's really interesting. We find that about a lot of the fellows coming out of the program, a lot of them are actually very excited about teaching. And we've actually hired some of them to uh, continue on to be instructors and, uh, and for corporate training. Uh, but, you know, it was the academic rat race that was the unappealing part aspect of this. So, so uh, I imagine, so I'm actually an advisor to a company similar to the data incubator called the ASI in, in London. But uh, they have a fellowship, but then now they also... Uh, actually do a lot more consulting than the fellowship. So uh, are are you folks also doing that kind of work? One, just to keep your edge probably so that uh, you're not just uh, uh, teaching in a theoretical way. Mm -hmm. But two, also just because naturally you're constantly talking to companies. Yeah, we are. And a lot of how we're updating our curriculum comes from these conversations we're having with companies uh, on a you know near daily basis. We talk to lots of hiring companies. Uh, we always want to understand what's interesting to them. Uh, and I think, you know, just to give you a few examples, uh, when we started uh, the Data Incubator, I think Spark still wasn't a very big thing. But now we're seeing this kind of huge demand for Spark. And that's one of the things that our corporate training partners are really asking for. It's one of our most popular modules. Yeah, when we so, talked last year, you were mostly on the Pi Data. Uh, that's right. We were still, uh, I think about last year is about when we started building out the, uh, the Spark stuff. But we've really seen that take off right, uh, right. in the last year. And you know, just to get, complete the story, back in 2012, when Spark was still on 0.6, uh, I was talking to Andy Wendell and Andy, uh, sorry, Patrick Wendell and Andy Kowinski. Kowinski at, uh, uh, at, well, uh, I guess they kind of called it. Databricks, yeah, yeah. Full, yeah. Dis- full disclosure, I'm an advisor to Databricks. Oh, okay. Uh, I did not know that, but uh, I'll take that uh, as a well play- time placement. Um, but yeah, so we were talking to them and seeing what we could, uh, whether we could sort of get that onboarded at Foursquare as a technology. And I think it was, at that time, we still thought it was, a, Foursquare still thought it was a little too immature. And it's been great to sort of see it evolve now to the point where we're cl- collaborating with Databricks to do trainings. Uh, and this just huge demand in industry. And speaking of which, Michael is doing an online training for O'Reilly from uh, October 10th to October 14th. And we'll put a link to that training on the post accompanying this episode. Yes, absolutely. And we're very excited to be doing this. Uh, and, you know, we're huge evangelists for data science. Uh, so we're just really excited to be able to offer this to the O'Reilly, uh, to O'Reilly subscribers. So as you talk with companies about their training needs, and you mentioned you're now going in and, and uh, doing kind of custom uh, training classes for companies, what kinds of uh, things are they looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that companies have become 
increasingly sophisticated. They understand that it's not just about the kind of fancy, shiny machine learning algorithm at the end, but that there's a lot of kind of software engineering skills that go into this and a lot of ETL and munging the data. And so we're seeing an emphasis not just on the section uh, modules like neural networks or deep learning or uh, natural language processing, but also things like uh, just munging your data in Python or using Spark to clean your data, right? And we sort of offer classes in all of those, and we've seen a large amount of demand for that. What about, uh, Michael, do you also help them with kind of infrastructure and data engineering training, like setting up Spark? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so not specifically with Spark, but we also offer a module that does kind of more DevOps stuff, helping them set up uh, their, uh, their systems in the cloud. Uh, we recently, in fact, I think we're actually going to be publishing this in O'Reilly, but we recently did a benchmark between AWS and uh, Google Cloud. And we actually really liked what we were seeing from Google Cloud, and we started switching our entire curriculum over uh, to using that platform. So, so how does uh, that, uh, so if, if you train, let's say I come to you, you train me on Google Cloud, um, mm-hmm. but there's more jobs in AWS. So will those skills transfer between these platforms? Yeah, very much so. You know, I think when we uh, d- did this, uh, it is on some of these tools, right, uh, MR Job or Spark, it is literally, you know, dash dash AWS or dash dash uh, G Cloud. Uh, and a lot of the underlying code has been written there. Now, there is a little bit that you have to do in terms of getting all this stuff set up, but it's actually not a very high barrier to entry, and certainly not for Google Cloud. So what kinds of skills and topics are in most demand right now based on uh, your uh, interaction with uh, HR uh, uh, officials at different companies and, and, and hiring managers? Yeah, and I think a lot of those conversations are really with the hiring managers because HR sort of defers on these kind of technical matters to the uh, you know chief of data science. And I think we've again we've seen this huge growth in Spark in the last year. Uh, really, you know, we're about to move towards Spark 2.0, and um, there's just a tremendous demand from industry for moving off of MapReduce and writing their large-scale distributed code in. Spark. You know, I, I, also... I, I would just add, as someone who organizes uh, uh, Strata, which now happens at, in five places in the world. Yeah, congratulations Spark, on that. Spark is still a huge topic inside Strata, not just on the tutorial and training side, but the, the sessions that uh, get the most attendance tend to be, involve Spark. Yeah, and I think what we've seen is that there's a lot of people are also very interested in how do you tune Spark. Um, that might be one of the things that's I don't know, maybe arguably not as well documented and otherwise very well yeah, documented. Yeah, those, are pop- those are definitely popular sessions. And that's definitely stuff we'll be talking about in our training for O'Reilly. So, on, um, uh, I, so yes. I, I imagine so you have Spark uh, as a, a popular t- topic. Um, so at Strata, the other topic around data engineering that seems to be popular is anything that involves architecture or data platform, uh, those kinds of things. So in other words, how do I piece together these different components, uh, and also uh, people love the uh, the sessions that involve a company they know. You know, I don't know, like mm. Netflix or Uber, who will yep. they, who will yeah. they come out and say, "This is what our platform looks like." Right? So. Absolutely. Uh, 
And we've done some work actually with a number of、uh, companies like Netflix and Uber, sort of helping them with their hiring and training. So it's been really interesting to be able to talk to them and sort of see like, oh, this is the kind of、uh, architecture that you have, and how do we think about incorporating that into our curriculum? And the other, so the other topic that I think we're seeing a large amount of growth in, and I'd be curious if you see that in Strata, is around.、Uh, Neural nets and deep learning.、Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep learning. Yeah, deep learning is a huge topic now in Strata. Yeah, it's going to be、uh, even bigger. Yeah, and uh, uh,、oh. and uh, we also have actually、uh, just for the audience out there, we also have now a separate conference just on AI,、uh, which is not a deep. That's right. And it's not a deep learning conference. And so people always ask me,、uh, what's the difference between machine learning and AI? Right. So.、Uh, So now I've come to answer it in the following way. I just go old school, Michael. So I just say,、mm-hmm. you know, a machine, an AI system will have a, a module for pattern recognition, which might be deep learning, but it'll also、mm-hmm. have other modules. It'll have knowledge, reasoning, and planning. Right. So, in other words,、uh, mm-hmm. a system that's great at pattern recognition but has no access to knowledge is not most definitely not an intelligent system. Right. So, but, yeah. But anyway, so deep learning, yeah. So deep learning, are you folks starting to uh, uh, offer training? We are.、Uh, we started do- doing some stuff around、uh, TensorFlow, TensorFlow and、yep. um, and also around uh, uh, t- uh, Torch and Theano and that sort of right, right, part right. of the world. Right, right, right. So I think that you know this is something that's much like actually with Spark. That's just an, Very rapidly evolving technology,、uh, and I think part of the challenge, but also part of the fun of this, is just keeping up with it、uh, and sort of seeing、yeah. what's coming out. So it's at that state. So, for example, with TensorFlow, easy to install. You can run the sample architectures against your data, but、uh, it's you know if you had to actually re-architect that network or or、mm-hmm. actually build your own network, I think the documentation and And the opportunity for training is still there. For one, I think that、uh, just debugging these really deep、uh, architectures, the ones with many、mm-hmm. many layers, is difficult,、mm-hmm. and, and the the tools aren't there. So, and mo- most of the time, you end up actually having to still apprentice with an expert for a while to just learn how to、uh, tweak and and、uh, build these yeah. Uh, uh, architectures. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tough thing, and I think that's one of the reasons people are. Asking for sort of training because it is such a foreign environment. Yeah, yeah, and then obviously I think that the people look at some of the top companies who are using it and、uh, have done so with a lot of success, and so they want to see if this is something they can use themselves. So, so we'll see. So, Very much. So. At, at least at, within Google, they're actually using deep learning、uh, in many, many in many many settings now, not just、uh, for images and speech. What So, how do you see data science evolving so far? Yeah, no, I think that's a you know that's a sixty-four million dollar question, right? You know, when I think about how I think about data science so, evolving, so let, let me also, let me let me reframe that. So, as someone who works with hiring managers,、uh, mm-hmm. is is what we think of as data science the same as what enterprise thinks of as data? Ah,、science? no, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think from our experience with enterprise, there is a certain amount of confusion as to what data science is. You know, that maybe one way to think to think about it is that 
I think a, a lot of times people think of data science as this kind of unicorn. You give it some data, magically, money will flow out of it. Uh, and I think it's a much more complex process than that. So a lot of what we've been doing, especially with enterprise, has been doing um, education, trying to kind of debunk some myths around data science, help uh, alleviate some of the misunderstandings. Um, because I think that there is, a, you know, data science is such a fascinating area because it is a, it encompasses so much, right? It can be anywhere from AI to machine learning to sometimes people are effectively doing data engineering or business intelligence. And it sort of has to encompass all these things. So I think helping employers understand, for example, when you're doing data science for humans versus data science for machines, that's a very different kind of skill set that you're looking for. And who, what are the kind of uh, profiles you want to look for? What are the kind of interview questions you want to be asking for? Just helping to educate them around these things has been a very important part of uh, working with large enterprise. So, but uh, is the mandate you get basically taking people uh, in an enterprise, like a business analyst, and uh, turning them into data scientists? Yes. Um, so I think, yeah, so we get a little of both, right? So we, for our enterprise clients, we have both a training offering and a hiring offering. So the hiring offering, it's, hey, we need data scientists. We need new people. Help us find them. And then within the training offering, it's, we have analysts or statisticians. We need to get them to the ne that next level. And it's a lot of that is around how do we identify the kind of skills in, um, that they uh, maybe are a little weaker at and create products, uh, sorry, create training solutions around that to get them caught up. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my, that that I guess that was the heart of my question, really. Now that I think about it, which is, uh, in many ways, then for the retraining aspect, you you have to go in and and understand what, for example, are they using SAS or are they using Excel, and then really customize mm -hmm. customize the class for that company. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things we've done is really built out a skills taxonomy. So we can go to a client and say, hey, this is, this is where you fall on these skill sets. This, um, and these are the courses that might work for you in terms of getting you caught up to this level that you want to be at. And I, you know, if I sort of had to do a PCA analysis on this, right? If I did some clustering, I would say that we, you typically see kind of two backgrounds. One is people who are sort of more on the software engineering side. Um, they're very happy writing code, but maybe they don't know as much or as, or as familiar with probability, statistics, machine learning. So sort of getting them caught up on that side of things. And then the other uh, main group that we see are people who have a, a you know, deep statistical background. And they often can program a little bit, but they often lack a lot of the uh, I don't know, engineering know wherewithal and an understanding of how you put together all this fancy math you know if now this is the numerical method that actually computes the answer. So a lot of that is then getting them more familiar with programming uh, and dealing with data and wrangling with large amounts of data so that they can then apply all their deep mathematical statistical understanding to become much more effective. So uh, do you have any plans to uh, de design classes for non-programmers? And the in other words, the people who manage the people that you're now uh, training? Oh, we already have. Um, we, uh, you know, we do courses on uh, what we call predictive analytics, uh, but which is basically ge geared towards taking you from 
I usually mess with data in Excel. Maybe I understand a few macros all the way to now let's get, get you started on SQL. Let's get you caught up on some elementary Python and pandas so you can start manipulating data in a much more robust way. So as you go out and talk to people in industry or even the people that you are uh, wanting to train, so what have you found to be some of the misunderstandings around data science? Yeah, well, that's a really great question. I think that there's, uh, let me uh, put a, f- a few. I think one of them is this idea of data science for humans versus data science for machines. Uh, and I think that a lot of people just think, oh, they're data scientists, they just look at data. But it really depends, the kind of person you're looking to hire really depends on whether the output of their analysis is meant to be geared to, given to human decision makers, or whether that output is meant to be handed to a machine, which will then process everything. Uh, and I did a little bit of both at Foursquare, but they required kind of very different skill sets. Um, and the kind of very, you know, one of them, you're going to be very much, you know, just, I have a metric, I need to improve that metric, let me just turn this dial and make the model as complex as possible. On the other one, you have to realize that a human has to understand this, so you have to make this model simple enough that a human can look at it and really grab put their mind around it. So I think that these this distinction is very important. Another uh, important thing to keep in mind is that more data doesn't always mean more accuracy, right? Uh, we all know that uh, the standard error of our me- measurements goes down with square root of n of data. So as you have more data, your measurement noise goes down. But you have to remember that that's only true if you're actually measuring the right thing, if you have an unbiased estimator. Uh, but many t- cases, especially when you're dealing with big data, you have to start really thinking about what are the biases in my data that might mean I think I'm measuring X, but I'm actually measuring Y. Um, you know, case in point, in the 1936 election between Roosevelt and Landon, Reader's Digest commissioned what I think must be the largest poll that has ever been commissioned. It was tens of millions of people. They uh, blanketed the whole... Uh, U.S. with these uh, uh, with this questionnaire, they got all these responses, and they predicted a victory for a guy named Ralph Landon, who was a Republican. And lo and behold, there's a reason you've never heard of this guy. It's because he lost the election, even though they should have, in principle, measured this to you know a basis point of accuracy. And the reason was because when they did their poll, they had a biased population. They were sampling from people based on the uh, entries in a automobile registries and telephone uh, registries. So these are people in the middle of the Great Depression who happen to have a telephone or a car, which tended to select for a more wealthy population, which happened to vote more Republican at that time. So because like, even though you have large data, that doesn't mean that you are always going to be accurate. You have to really think outside the data and understand that the data uh, might be biased in some way. Yeah, or just or just make some assumption that... Uh... Let's say for the big companies that are uh, uh, getting a lot of success from just uh, employing machine learning black boxes, right? So the so-called reasonable effectiveness of data. I think as mm-hmm. long as you kind of uh, go in with the assumption that the black box is going to be good at predicting categories or results uh, based on input data that looks like my 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 massive sample, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And you and I are both uh, understand the finance world well enough to know that black box trading, while it can be very profitable, can also be very risky. And that's exactly because you're always at risk of overfitting to the most recent data. And economic data 
you know, comes in bursts and sometimes economic conditions really change. And if you are trading one way and, a, you know, the stock market crashes or there's a depression out there, then you, you are, th- that strategy that you were do- employing in the boom times may very well not work in the bust times. So it's another example of yeah, there's how a re- you Yeah, there's careful. a recent example. I don't know, maybe you maybe you know the details, but remember there was this famous example of the flu trends using Google search, oh, yeah. search logs. Yeah, and, then, right. and then suddenly they went back later and they realized this thing isn't working out as good anymore. Yeah. Which which think, uh, which is fine because it's just a toy thing. But you you can imagine if you map that example to Wall Street, right? So you started taking these massive positions and then it turned out to be wrong, right? So that's another great uh, warning. Um, and then, you know, if the, in terms of the last misunderstanding, I think that employers often think of data scientists as physicists or mathematicians, or computer scientists, right? There's these kind of standard disciplines. But what we found is that if you take away your kind of prejudices about who a typical data scientist is and you get, uh, give people challenges, and that's what we do. We, uh, for the admissions of the program, for our fellowship, we give people these blind uh, data science challenges and we see how they do. One of the categories that tends to do really well, but which people don't talk about, are social scientists. So people who are maybe studying economics or uh, political science, and they actually so have define, a very... I guess, uh, let me stop you there. So define well in terms of uh, that first misunderstanding. Do, do they well on data science for humans or data science for machines? Ah, um, I, and so they do well for both, or sort of testing for both, but I think they're particularly strong at data science for humans. And okay. I'm actually really glad you brought up that point because... In many ways, so the story of the social sciences is that uh, it's become increasingly quantitative, increasingly data-driven in the last, uh, over the course of the last few decades. Then, yeah. Ten years, right? So, and um, some of these, uh, in economics, this is actually... Oh, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, economics has but, been, uh, especially yeah. econometrics is basically stats, right? So. Yeah, exactly. So over the course of the last few decades, um, depending on how you want to measure it, and... I think the problem is that when people think of economists, we still still think of like Keynes, right? Uh, a man who's essentially a philosopher uh, who sat down and wrote about how the economy should be and tried to reason about it from from first principles. But that's only that's a much smaller set of economics. And the interesting thing is that within all these social science fields, you have a young generation of PhD students and junior faculty who are very quantitatively driven, but an older generation but that that's they, less so. So, so tend, there's always this... They tend, to be sorry, more, they tend to be more statistics than machine learning, right? Yes, that's true. There's an emphasis on statistics, but there's really an emphasis on trying to apply, uh, trying to take all this math and data science or statistics that I've done and explain it to a broader audience uh, and an audience that's not necessarily as conversant with the technical aspects as, uh, the, uh, as I am or you are. And so that's why I think they're actually often very good at doing you know, what we're call, calling data science for humans because they, that's what they do for their discipline. This is how they get promoted. This is how they get pieces published. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, include, which, in, which includes... Uh... When you say explain, that includes both verbal and written communication. Verbal, written, and visualization. That's a huge part of data science as well. Uh, but you, you're absolutely right. I think that you know all these disciplines have various aspects that make them very strong for becoming a data scientist, but also a few things that are 
not quite what uh, is being used in industry. So I think with economists and with a lot of social scientists, there's a very strong emphasis on statistics and, and statistical reasoning, but not as much of an emphasis on machine learning. Um, typically never something like neural nets. Uh, with, you know, many physicists, for example, uh, while they might program and do a lot of programming and any kind of large scale data manipulation, they're often using older languages like Fortran or IDL, which uh, you know, aren't really used in industry anymore. So a lot of what we're doing in the fellowship is getting folks caught up, folks who have kind of these basic, the basic fundamental understanding of things and getting them caught up to the actual industry practice of today. And, uh, you know, I mean, I would imagine the social scientists would excel at something that uh, people in computer science and other disciplines uh, don't. And uh, one of those things would be... Uh, designing experiments oh yes that's very uh, that's actually a really interesting question and you know a b testing and experimental design is a huge topic um today in startups and even large enterprises and and Um, social scientists obviously that's their bread and butter right so that is very much their bread and butter um i think that you know if we want to talk about go back to your point about misunderstandings i think one of the other major misunderstandings uh, or lack of understandings people have is the distinction between experimental data versus observational data and the amount to which you can infer causality from one to the other uh, and one of the nice things about social science is that I mean, we all know that experimental data is great to have but it can be expensive to collect and so we're often relying on observational data where you may not be able to make causal inferences but social scientists are stuck in this problem all the time right like much more so than companies companies can actually sometimes run experiments but if you are a large country and you need to understand the effect of tax policy on economic growth, you're not going to go run an experiment to try to solve that. Uh, and so you have to look for natural experiments that occur. And this is one of the things that social scientists are really good at is thinking about, is the data that I'm observing close enough to an experiment, experimental data that I can actually just um, make some inferences from, stronger inferences from that than I otherwise would be able to. Yeah, and they're very good at, uh, as you described, Teasing out uh, maybe even uh, causal relationships from natural experiments. Exactly. And I think it's the, the natural the, experiments. So, There's some people in economics who are amazing at that. The buzzword here is uh, instrumental variables. Yeah, instrumental uh, variables, right. And I, this is like one of my favorite topics. I could go on about it forever and ever, but it is super what, interesting. What was, what's that book that I, that I love that just came out? I don't. I, yeah, I don't. I don't name, know. Name, a, name some books that in this area that uh, for our readers. Uh, I forget. Uh, let me whip out my iPad here. Keep talking. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and, I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, and, then, and then and then the stuff that actually, to be fair, there's uh, a there's a group of uh, computer scientists who are also tackling this problem around. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, Judea Pearl stuff? Data Pearl. Uh, I no, can't no, say. No, Jude, Judea Pearl in UCLA. Uh, I no, I can't say. Oh yeah, yeah, no, man. So you should check out the uh, the stuff he's working on. It's around um, precisely this topic of causality. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Um, I will have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the you know one of the canonical examples, right, is a study to understand the effect of having uh, female children on your political preferences around kind of uh, women women's issues uh, and. This is, you can actually study this very easily by looking at all the members of Congress. 
seeing which ones have had female children and which ones haven't. And you can find that even across party, across ideological lines, uh, and, it, and it doesn't matter what uh, gender or sex you are, or no, actually, I think this only applied to the male representatives or senators. If you had a daughter, you were more likely to be to support issues around, you know, women in the workplace, equal pay, uh, things like that. And if you only had male children, uh, and it's sort of, you know, a beautiful study that was done. And if you sort of think about it, uh, this is only an observational study, but it is a perfect example of like how you can use endogenous variation to try to extract causal conclusions. So I found the book. It's called Mastering Metrics. I don't know. Mastering Metrics. I'll have to read it. By uh, Joshua Angrist. The Path from Cost to Effect is the subtitle. So a couple of economists. Yeah, I started reading it, but, uh, you know, I got busy. But it was, uh, yeah, uh, from what I remember, it was a a great book. So I recommend it. So anyway, uh, Michael, this has been great. Um, And uh, we look forward to your training. Uh, October 10th. We're very excited about it as well. October 10th to 14th, and it's on Spark. So very briefly, what's the prerequisite for taking this course and what do people, what should people expect to get out of it? Yeah. You know, I think we wanted to start this at a very simple level so that people with some basic familiarity of programming can start uh, getting involved in Spark. Uh, and so we're going to be doing this for, in both Python and in Scala. So, you know, you can choose whichever API or whatever language you feel most comfortable with. And the idea is to really get you to a point where you can start. Uh, it is a short course, right? Obviously, it's only uh, th- uh, one week. Um, and the idea is to try to get you started to the, get you to a place where you feel comfortable creating jobs and running them uh, online on the cloud, uh, get you to a place where you feel very comfortable debugging this stuff. And also where you can start understanding how to tune some of the parameters to optimize your performance. So not, you know, the full kitchen caboodle. Although there's a lot of interest, we can definitely offer a follow-up course uh, to teach more of the API. But it's really enough to kind of get you started and get you playing around with Spark. Well, thank you again. Thank you. You can follow Michael Lee on Twitter at T-I-A-N-H-U-I-L. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.